The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. As we're rolling into Easter, uh, let me begin by something of, I just want to talk about something of great spiritual significance to the people of Sydney. Uh, and that would be, who's your favourite footballer? Now, now, some of you thought, ah, and the rest, some of you, I know particularly the ladies, the screensaver has gone on in your head. But bear with me, it won't take long and you'll see where I'm going. Now, depending on which tribe you're in, Sydney's very tribal. Uh, if you're in the, uh, the football tribe, as they would call it, it might be Tim Cale. Um, 88 times representing Australia with the Socceroos, very impressive. Or Jared McVeigh, uh, I think he's played 266 games for the Swannies uh, in uh, AFL. Uh, if you're a, a rugby league supporter, Greg Inglis, I read the stats, he's 6'5", and um, kind of a rugby league legend with Souths, um, with the Rabbitohs. Sonny Bill Williams, who's played for pretty much everyone and won pretty much everything. Um, he's the only guy I know who's given away a World Cup medal, but... Anyway, that's another story. And my second favourite football of all, footballer of all, is Israel Folau. He's a rugby union player, if you don't follow it, and uh, plays for the Waratahs. But I thought I'd show you a picture of my favourite all-time footballer. And uh, here he is. Now, that photo's about 20 years old. Uh, he kind of grew up and looks a bit like this now. Can't... Yeah, it doesn't quite... We, what do we do? It doesn't, it doesn't matter, Russ, it's all right. Um, anyway, here's a picture of him with his number one supporter, and that would be his mum. And uh, his mum's actually very good looking, but uh, you can't quite... Uh, now, why is he, and you can kind of fill in the blanks with imagination, why is he my favourite footballer? Anyone want to guess? Yes, sir? He's my son, exactly, that's right. And so for 20 years, I've been following him around, watching him play football. In fact, he retired last year, which makes me feel old. He's 27 walked away without being all busted up. It's good. But 20 years of seeing him play football and time with him has been very special. Let me put it to you this way. I think relationships, people and what you share with them really is the most important thing in life. And sometimes we forget that, but I think deep down we, we really we know that. And one of the key relationships in the whole of life is parent and child. Because we've all had that relationship one way or another, or wanted that relationship. Not all of us will marry, not all of us will have siblings, not all of us will have children, but we're all part of the parent-child thing in one way or another. Now, your parents are so important to you. Now, some people say that you end up looking like your parents. Now, fortunately, in my family, the gene pool thing isn't that strong. So here's a picture of... Um, oh, you can't really see it, can you? Here's a picture of my grandfather uh, with me. And then uh, you can see that there's no resemblance at all. Uh, that, yeah, it, didn't, it didn't, just didn't carry through in our gene pool. You look like your parents, but they have a massive influence on you. And when things are good, they're very good. And when things are bad, they can be really bad. So many people I talk to are alienated from, strangely, particularly their fathers, men who are alienated from their fathers. I know in my family of origin at the moment, things are a real mess with kids not talking to parents and parents not talking to kids, and it's just, it's awful. And, you know, I really, really wish there was like a reset button that you could hit, a button that would take it back and start again, and maybe there's relationships that you wish that 
for as well. But it's so hard because things have been said that can't be taken back, that people aren't prepared to forgive, that it's just too awkward, you can't... There isn't a reset button. But let me ask you about what you believe about God. Why, why is that relevant? Well, Jesus taught we'll only know God if we know God as a father, as the one who, is, uh, who, who gave us life, the one who cares for us, the one who disciplines us, the one who teaches us, the one who corrects us, who loves us. Uh, and yet Jesus taught that we're, we're naturally alienated from our father in heaven, that we don't obey him, we don't honour him, we haven't listened to him, and there's this huge barrier between us. And the question is, is there, is there a reset button? Is there a way of starting again with that relationship? Now, the good news is Jesus says, yes, absolutely, there is. And what I'd like to do is look with you at a little story that Jesus told about just that, about a, a fresh start. It's possibly the most famous story that Jesus ever told, known as the prodigal son, although probably better to call it the lost son. Uh, it's printed out inside your program there in Luke chapter 15. Uh, to, to put it in context, uh, Jesus, we've been working our way through Luke's gospel over the last couple of years um, here at City Bible Forum. Uh, in chapter 9, Jesus has decided that it's time to walk all the way from up, in north, uh, up north in Galilee to walk down south to Jerusalem, knowing that when he gets there, it'll take till chapter 19, when he gets there, he'll be crucified. And as he walks, he's teaching people and calling them to follow him, teaching them about God and how they can have a fresh start, if you like, through him. Uh, This day, um, Jesus is, uh, well, let me show you what Luke says. Now, so it's on the screen or in your hands, whichever you prefer. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And there's two groups of people listening that day. You notice the tax collectors and sinners, they are the people who are not religious, are not moral, are kind of outside the edge of polite society. They've done the wrong thing. Now, they've done the wrong thing, and they, they know it, and they're ready to listen to Jesus. But the other group, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, uh, when it says the law, it means like the Old Testament law. The Pharisees, they're the religious establishment. They're the church-going, moral, upright, uh, community service organisation, belonging. They've always done the right thing, and they know it. And notice, they're looking down their noses. They're mocking Jesus, who eats with, cares for the first group. Okay, two groups of people listening. And then Jesus tells some stories in chapter 15. He tells a story about a lost sheep. He tells a story about a lost coin. You could read those at your leisure. And then, kind of in the climax of the chapter, he tells a story about a father and his two boys. Two groups listening, two boys in the story. Let's read the story. And I'd say as I read this story over the next few minutes, you'll be able to work out very clearly where you stand with God. Let's have a look. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Uh, It's it's hard to imagine, uh, even today, that someone could be that rude, cruel uh, to their father. When is it that you get your inheritance? When, When Dad dies. And he says, it's essentially saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Now, even worse in the first century. And strangely, the father gives him what he asks for. 
Uh, in the story, the Father pretty obviously stands for God. And I, I wonder, I think often God gives us what we want in a way to show us that it just, it's not good for us. It's not, and yet he'll give us what we want to teach us that. So what happens? The boy uh, gets all his money, his uh, inheritance, and not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Well, he had to get away from his father because, well, he knew best, didn't he? Have you seen that bumper sticker that says, employ a teenager while they still know everything? Yeah? Anyway, just the older you get, the funnier that one gets. Uh, uh, wouldn't that be great to get get to a faraway place there's no one who can kind of look over your shoulder you're completely free a pocket full of money you don't have to serve anyone or anything complete freedom you don't have to serve anyone you don't serve anything except it's interesting the bible says that that that's impossible that we will all serve something and in the way that the bible uh, the new testament writers talk the word for serve And the word for worship are essentially the same. You serve something, you worship it. I'll show you a quote from uh, a great little article called This Is Water, written by a man, David Foster Wallace, very clever writer, insightful. Uh, David Foster Wallace, as far as I know, was not a Christian. Uh, He's he's dead now. It's very sad. He took his own life um, a few years ago. I think it was 2008. Suffered badly from depression. It's very sad. But he wrote this uh, article, or this is actually part of a speech that he gave at a graduation at a United States University, uh, This Is Water. And if you Google This Is Water, you can see the whole thing is a PDF and uh, it's brilliant. But let me just read to you this excerpt from this man who understands we will all serve or worship something. Here we go. He says, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some invaluable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. What does he mean? Well, he explains... If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap into real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs and cliches and epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And you'll never, uh, sorry, you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings 
because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. You see what he's saying? You, you will end up serving something. Serve money, you'll never have enough. Serve intellect, you'll always realise people are going to find out or live in fear of people finding out you're not that clever. You worship the body beautiful. Let me tell you, folks, some of you guys are still really young. You cannot beat time and gravity. It doesn't matter how carefully you watch your diet, how much you exit, time and gravity will win. Now, he talks about that in terms of will always serve someone and, and the things you serve will so easily let you down. Jesus talks about this, if you want to use the word he uses elsewhere, as sin. He describes it in this story as walking away from God, walking away from the one who is the source of life. And it has consequences. You see the consequences for this young man. After he, the young guy, had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, for a well-born Jewish man, that's the bottom of the barrel, isn't it? It's, It's the end consequences of walking away from God you see the consequences will die now I know for for some of you understand that many of you don't yet I know everyone said oh you tick the box everyone dies but until you're maybe 35 maybe 40 you don't know it existentially you can't feel it in your body once you turn 40 you start to get some idea let me tell you once you pass 55, there's a megaphone every morning telling you that, okay? Oh, where's the coffee? All right. So the Bible says if we keep walking away from God, we'll die. Now, our society thinks that death means the end. But that's not the way the Bible thinks. The Bible talks about death as separation, okay? So what's death? Well, separation of soul and body, we see that. But then also separation from God eternally. And Jesus says that's a terrifying thought. His word for that was hell, being sent away, separated from God, the source of life, forever. He says, do anything to avoid that. And in the story, the young man works out there's one way that he won't die. And that is, well, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and I'll go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. What's he expecting? At best, he'll be able to be a servant, kind of out the back and and with the hired men. What does he deserve when he gets home? Well, he deserves, right, boot up the backside. In fact, he deserves to be sent away. The way he's treated his father, the insults, the shame. What does he get? Well, this is the most amazing thing in the story. And my, I'm sure that as people heard this story for the first time, their mouths dropped open. As Jesus is saying, this is the way that God will treat people. What are we told? But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Why did his dad see him when he was a long way off? Well, the idea was his father standing on the veranda, looking down the driveway, waiting, looking every day for his boy to come home. And in the Middle East, old men never run. It meant 
pulling your kind of your, your skirt or your robe up and showing your legs and it was undignified and, he, and yet he runs to his son, possibly runs through the village so the boy doesn't have to walk through the walk of shame, if you like, on his own. Grabs him, hugs him, welcomes him. The boy's genuinely sorry. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's truly sorry, but he doesn't even get to finish his little speech. Why? But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now the the ring and the robe uh, and the sandals are all symbols of sonship. Servants didn't wear sandals, they went barefoot. The ring, the robe, it's like saying, welcome back, son. And yes, here's the car keys and you can have your old room back and look, yeah, okay, look, we'll hook up Foxtel as well, okay? It's, like, it's that sort of thing. And notice he says, let's, have, let's celebrate. He doesn't say, uh, well, look, uh, Domino's Pizza's got a, a bargain on family pizzas. We could get a couple of garlic breads of pizza and... All right, we'll rent a movie off iTunes, okay? No, no, to kill the fattened calf is a huge thing. In those, in, like now, if we want a steak, well, it's in the freezer, isn't it? Those days, you want a steak, well, it's outside eating grass with a bell around its neck. And it, and it was a big deal to kill the fattened calf. And he's saying, let's celebrate. A picture of joy. And then he says something, did you notice verse 24? He says something that's incredibly important. And my guess is that, of people in Australia don't understand this. And it breaks my heart that that they don't. You see what the father says? Why is he celebrating? For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Most people think that Christianity is... um, We're playing good boy, not bad boy. Or good girl, not bad girl. But that's not what he says, is it? He doesn't say, this son of mine was bad and now he's good. No, 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 no. He's saying... He was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's out. We're playing live boy or dead boy, lost girl or found girl. If you stay away, you'll, you'll die spiritually. If you come back... That's a picture, that celebration is a picture of, of free forgiveness. Huh? A free and complete welcome home. And it's a picture of free forgiveness in that it's free for us. But as Jesus stood there this day, he knew that within just a few weeks he would be in Jerusalem and he would die in the place of all of those younger sons, of all the ones who've done the wrong thing. He'd take my guilt and your guilt and he would take that punishment. Why? So that God can be just and God cares passionately for justice. But that God could also be merciful. And so free for us, but costly for Jesus. So there you go, there's, uh, there's the story. The young son comes home, uh, he's welcomed home, great joy, Jesus says come home, and so thanks for coming. Any questions? Oh no, wait a minute, there was, how many sons were there? Two. Ah, oh, wait, you better get ready. Okay. Meanwhile, the older son's in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, and so he called one of the master's servants and asked him what was going on. Well, your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother was delighted because he loved his little brother and he went into the party and they had a great time and... It's not what it said, is it? 
the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Can you imagine him standing outside, arms folded, bottom lip stuck out, hitting dust? I would have left him there. Do you notice the dad loves both his boys? Dad loves the wild one, and dad loves the self-righteous one. And dad, if you like, it's almost as if dad swallows his own pride and goes out to this boy with his bottom lip stuck out. But look what he says. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, and you notice he calls him this son of yours, not my little brother, when this son of yours who's squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now, can't you just empathise with him a little bit? How many oldest children in the family do we have here? Let me come on, your oldest. Uh, now, I know you understand, right? You do, don't you? We are the ones who carry the weight of family expectations. We always do the right thing. We're the first ones to go and do all the right. And then these other freeloaders turn up and they get away with it. You ought to see what our youngest, I've got four kids, you ought to see what the youngest gets away with anyway. Maybe you shouldn't. Um, yeah. What's the truly sad thing? The truly sad thing is he's, he's been on the farm all the time and he's done the right thing. But he doesn't know or love his father at all. He thinks his dad is the fun police. You know, it's a great sadness that so many people think of God and the true God, the God of the Bible. But they think the true God is like that. They think of God like the, the councils who, you know, they, they work out all the fun things that you could do in a park, like, you know, the, you know, the big grassy park, and then there's, you know, like, um, fire camp, fire camp out, ride a horse, let your dog run around, kick a ball, play music. Like, and then they make up little kind of silhouettes of those things and then put red lines through them all. <laughs> My kids just said, Dad, look at the no fun sign. It's kind of like, you're allowed to read a book here as long as you turn the pages quietly. So, probably God's like that. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, if it's good and if it's fun, God invented it. You think, oh, God says no to a whole lot of it. Yes. But if God says no to something, it's not to spoil your fun. It's because it will damage you or it will damage someone else. Happy to talk about that later on. But if God says no, not to spoil fun, it's to say you'll damage yourself or you'll damage someone else. Uh, no love for his little brother. And what God wants is not, is not that we'll strap on some great burden of obligation, it's that we come to him and find forgiveness and joy. What does the dad say? The dad says, oh son, you, you still don't understand. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, notice he doesn't say this son of mine, this brother of yours, this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. See, look, at, look at verse 32. He says, we're not playing who's been the best boy. We're not playing good boy, bad boy. Right? Good girl, bad girl. We're playing, what is it? Dead boy, live boy. Lost girl, found girl. We're, this is playing for peace. And even about who's been best, it's who will come home and find life with the father. 
And so uh, do you want to just check, does, um, does he go into the party or not? Um, Ross, did you print out the end of that story? Uh, it's where it stops, isn't it? It stops at verse 32. Why? Because Jesus is the master storyteller. And you get back to the beginning. Remember two groups of people, one that wanted to listen and one that didn't, one that was self-righteous and sneering at, at the others? And what's the self-righteous brother got to do to be able to come into the party? Answer? Swallow his pride. Humble himself. And there's the story. And my guess is that, like you say, my guess is we can all work out where we stand with God in that parable. Whether we've come back, how we think about him. Here's an offer. 38 years ago, something like that, I prayed a prayer like this to accept forgiveness from Jesus. To actually come back to God as Father. And I'm going to invite you now, if you'd like to, just quietly, in your own heart, to pray a prayer like this. Let me show you the kind of prayer. Let me, let me read it. Dear God, I'm sorry I've walked away from you and ignored you. I know I need to come home. Please forgive me because Jesus died in my place. Please help me to live my life for Jesus as my master and friend. Now, I'm, I'm going to pray that prayer sentence by sentence. And uh, if you'd like to, in the silence of your own heart, you could pray it after me. Um, if not, I'll just take a moment. So you might like to pray that prayer with me. God promises you'll hear you. So, I'd like you to pray with me if you like. Dear God, I'm sorry I've walked away from you and ignored you. I know I need to come home. Please forgive me because Jesus died in my place. Please help me to live my life for Jesus as my master and friend. Amen. If you pray that prayer, you might like to talk to someone about it. You might have questions. Let me hand back to Lachlan and uh, you might have time for some uh, Q&A as well. Um, now on to, to some questions. The important one first. Uh, how did Sonny Bill Williams lose the World Cup or give the World Cup away? Uh, no, he gave away a World Cup medal. A World Cup medal. He jumped out of the crowd and ran out. The security guard tackled him, uh, tackled the kid. Sonny Bill yeah there you go um, now our earthly fathers they don't always respond in the same manner that God has uh, so how do we know that God will respond in this way if I don't answer the second part of that question mm. John, okay. sure you know something about the of fathers um, I think it was Freud Sigmund Freud who said, what religious people do is to project our need for, um, uh, for a father into the sky. So we need a human father, so we project that into the sky and make God like that. Interesting, the Bible says the complete opposite. The Bible says that if you want to know what real fatherhood is, and that longing that we have for a true father that we can truly trust, um, that's found in God, who... Gives us life, who loves us, disciplines us, provides for us, all those kinds of things. Uh, you find that in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 3. And then our human fathers are just a kind of a, uh, a pale reflection of that. Mm. And to a greater or lesser extent, they do a good job. Almost everyone's father has let them down in some way. Some 
people's fathers have let them down profoundly, I think we wired up to long for that kind of relationship with the father so that when it doesn't work, it's really painful. Hmm. How do we know that God cares for us? Well, yeah. The New Testament writers keep coming back to one particular action, that is, we know how much God loves us because he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. If you want to know how much or how much you're valued, it's the price someone will pay for you. Mm. And the New Testament writers are blown away by the fact that God will pay the price and give us his son mm. who dies for us so that we can be in friendship with him. Mm. Oh, thanks. Uh, the next two questions are, are sort of related. Uh, can you explain the reset part? Uh, I mean, I might follow God, but don't the mistakes of my life still follow me around? Uh, and sort of related, is, is there anything that God can't forgive that I've done? Okay, uh, the reset part. Yeah, the reset idea, well, it's, just a, it's, a, it's a marketing idea, but if you said forgiveness is possible and God can wipe the slate clean, it wasn't going to fit on the thing now. It was going to be part of the <laughs> So the idea of reset is just... God is able to wipe the slate clean and forgive us, okay, to take away the penalty for the wrong that we've done and restore relationship. And once that's happened, we are much more likely too to be able to restore relationships with other people. Okay. Um, will the wrong things that we've done follow us around? Well, the consequences of what we've done, if you like, uh, may still take a lot of time to... Uh, to filter out. We may still live with some of the consequences that we've done, uh, although the relationship with God and the relationship with others is much more likely to be restored. Hmm. What was the second part of that question? Uh, so I think you've answered them both. Is there anything I can't be forgiven and uh, the reset? Yep. Uh, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus talks about the sin against the Holy Spirit, which is unforgivable. He talks about the unforgivable sin. And I understand what he means there is he's warning the religious leaders who are looking at what he is doing and saying... This man is in the of the devil. The work of God's Spirit in the New Testament, Jesus teaches God's Spirit is the one who opens people's eyes and points to Jesus. Okay? And so Jesus says to blaspheme uh, against the Spirit, to speak against God's Spirit, is to absolutely reject the message of Jesus and who he is. Hmm. So I'd say the one thing that God won't forgive ultimately is the continued hard-hearted rejection of the offer of forgiveness in Jesus. Cool. Thanks, Al. Uh, I'm more than happy to talk to anyone about that later on. Uh, so, last question that's come through. Uh, is it possible to lose salvation once God has given it? Um, <laughs> Jesus promises that those who truly come to him and truly believe in him, no one will snatch them out of his hand. But there's not a fatalism there. It's not like, oh, well, I signed it, I ticked the box on the 2nd of March uh, at the City Bible Forum, and it's now off the 8th. The New Testament is the way to make sure that you belong to Jesus, the way to make sure that you'll be okay, is to keep focusing on Him, keep walking towards Him, keep going. So it's an active thing, and that Jesus says He'll hold on to you, yes, the way that you see that happen is keep trusting Him, keep believing Him, keep obeying Him, keep walking towards Him. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city, or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.